Welcome to Jewish History Matters. I'm Jason Lustig, and today I'm joined by Rachel Harris to talk about her volume, Teaching the Arab-Israeli Conflict. Rachel S. Harris is Associate Professor of Israeli Literature and Culture at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Her books include An Ideological Death, Suicide in Israeli Literature, published in 2014, and Warriors, Witches, and Whores, Women in Israeli Cinema, which appeared in 2017. Her volume, Teaching the Arab-Israeli Conflict, is particularly exciting because it brings together almost 40 scholars who are teaching in a range of institutions to talk about how we teach about this conflict and why it matters. As Rachel and I are going to talk about in our conversation today, the Arab-Israeli conflict is a subject that presents a lot of challenges, but also a great many opportunities for thinking about the world at large. And I hope that you'll enjoy our conversation, not just about teaching and pedagogy, but also just in general, the question of how we as scholars or just people who are interested in these kinds of issues engage with the Arab-Israeli conflict or any political issue in a broad sense. I hope that you check out the book too, which is a really great resource for teachers and scholars and really anyone who wants to craft an educational experience about Israel. Hi, Rachel. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me here. This book, really, it's about pedagogy and about teaching. And uh, my hope is that in our conversation, we can use the book as a starting point for a broad discussion about how we think about the Arab-Israeli conflict and how we can engage with it as scholars and teach it and what we can learn from it in in essentially global and personal terms as well. Uh, In a certain way, the Arab-Israeli conflict, I think, very clearly it matters. I think anybody who says it doesn't matter is clearly off their rocker. It's a, it's a, it's an important <laughs> geopolitical issue, you know, but I think that it's useful to dig into why they matter in ways that we don't always think about. So I want to begin in a way by focusing on something that you emphasize how our students, they will go on to do great things in their lives. You're going to be politicians, activists, scholars, journalists in business, technology, whatever. And so I guess that, that when we talk about the Arab-Israeli conflict and why it matters beyond just the scholarly question, uh, and, and even just the, the, the global ramifications, where clearly this is something that is uh, of great importance. Why do you think that studying the Arab-Israeli conflict and teaching about it matters for the students who are coming into the classroom with all sorts of different interests and abilities and futures ahead of them? I think that's a great question. And given that it's a Jewish history podcast, you know, there is this temptation to say, well, the the people who need to study this are the people who are interested in Jewish history and Jewish identity. And of course, it's the home of, you know, around half the population of Jews in the world. So there is a lot to be said for that. But I think the conversation about the Arab-Israeli conflict isn't one that is really restricted to Jews or to Jewish history or an interest in Jewish history. And I think that there is a couple of different major reasons. And one is that it's just important for our understanding of world politics. And it has really played this integral role in major political shifts that have happened over the last century and a half that in which Israel often plays a pawn in a much larger international game in the Cold War, for example. In that sense, understanding the role of Israel as a U.S. ally, its relationship to Europe, its relationship to the Arab world is also part of a larger conversation about 
the larger discussion that we have all the time about global politics, oil, inventions, global commerce, health, innovation. So it belongs to that conversation. But I think at a much smaller level, it's also a great area as a case study for a huge range of academic disciplines and academic issues. In a way, the book really gets at the meat of different ways in which it functions in that role. It's a great way to think about issues of conflict resolution and conflict management, ongoing conflict. And we can compare it to other regional conflicts and think about how those issues are dealt with. It's a great place to think about issues over the conflict over limited resources and territorial debates over land, water rights, gas fields in the Mediterranean, which have become really significant in our understanding of how geopolitics works. It also allows us to think in urban planning terms about how we share public spaces or how we divide public spaces or how public transport has to cross over different kinds of spaces in order to create communities of economic interest or social interest. It allows us to think about, you know, larger questions of infrastructure. How do we deal with airwaves? How do we deal with mobile phone technology in a shared space? How do we deal with flight paths? In politics, it's a great place to talk about issues of sovereignty, state building, proportional representation, government, democracy. In military terms, a number of uh, the military academies in the U.S. I know teach courses on the Arab-Israeli conflict. And for them, what they're looking at is not this as a particular conflict, but as models for examining how we deal with contemporary warfare, how we deal with urban terrorism. And Israel, in many ways, has served as a case study for thinking about how you deal with those kinds of very specific questions. In general, we think about it as a place to talk about international relations, negotiation, peace building, but it also fits into larger conversations about peace building and reconciliation, how we deal with different groups that claim territorial. You know, there are some great works being done on how Sesame Street, for example, has served as a model of how we think about peace education, not just literacy, in the kind of children's programming that we want to do. So I think that what it gives us is a, a starting point for a whole range of conversations that reach beyond thinking about the Arab-Israeli conflict as a kind of tiny, individual, anomalous moment, but as an example that can that what we learn from it can be applied in other disciplinary contexts. I think that you've listed off a whole range of really important ways that we can tie in the study of the Israeli-Arab conflict into other fields and, and big questions, pressing issues that I think are are of real importance. Like you mentioned, for instance, uh, questions of limited resources. This is clearly happening on a local level. You talk about water rights, for instance, in 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 Israel and in the Middle East more broadly. You know, well, we're looking at a future where limited resources on a global environmental scale will be one of the major geopolitical factors, even more than it is already. So, I think that that what you've laid out here is is a clear case for the ways in which we can learn 
many, many, many things from looking at the Israeli-Arab conflict and not just about the specifics of the history. At the same time, you have listed off a whole range of kind of abstract ways in which it matters. Do you think that it's possible or even advisable to look at the Arab-Israeli conflict in such abstract terms? In a certain way, it, it feels like when we study history, it's easier to talk in these kind of terms about historical topics that are far removed from the present. You know, we can talk about these abstract terms, but like at the same time, it's it's such a pressing political issue, you know. Right. So, so I, I think that actually for our students, part of the reason that they come into the classroom is precisely because it's a hot topic that they encounter all the time in the news, in public media spaces, in different areas. And so for them, trying to understand more about the contemporary reality is this great moment for us to actually be able to get students into the classroom to then think in more complex ways about the information that they're receiving. So I think the fact that it isn't 200 years ago is exactly one of the reasons why it remains such a, a topic of interest and why so many centers of Israel studies have been growing. Um, I think that there's also... I need to think about this in terms of disciplinary variety. You know, I'm talking in abstract terms because in a way I'm talking about the larger project that the book set out. But the essays themselves deal in a very individual way with how to engage those issues in a localized, carefully thought out and relevant um, set of case studies that deal with particular examples. Going back to your reference to the water rights issue, Yes, we have this issue with water rights. Yes, we also know that the world is increasingly facing competition over water more generally, that this is going to be a major geopolitical issue. Um, it doesn't just take a James Bond film to tell us that. But what we can also do is look at how local innovation and resource work is working at conservation, how recycling works, how a huge part of the water issue can be resolved by limiting how water evaporates from water reserves and the kind of innovations that Israel has been inventing in order to restrict the evaporation and therefore conserve what water there is. Desalination plants, which have been a huge piece of Israel's technology around water are something that then gets exported into places like California to think about how they can treat water. So, you know, that would be one field and one area and, and it would be examined in a much more detailed way. When, when we talk more generally, we're always going to think about larger questions, but those, those smaller disciplinary questions are going to be investigated inside specific classroom spaces. Right. I, I want to get to some of these specific cases that, that you're looking at in, in, in the volume. But before we get into that, um, I want to ask about teaching outside the classroom, so to speak. Uh, this is something that I think about a lot when I look at teaching, right? I see teaching as something that we do as scholars in the classroom, clearly, but it's also something that we do beyond it. How do you see this volume contributing to teaching about Israel and the Arab-Israeli conflict beyond the college classroom. There are, are people who are learning about Israel and learning about these conflicts in a whole range of environments, and the university is only one part of it, right? So when we think about the role of scholars in teaching about the Arab-Israeli conflict, how do we engage with the public 
on these issues uh, at large? You know, and what is the role of scholars uh, in engaging with these issues in the public sphere? So I guess those are two ways to think about teaching. Right. Uh, you know that that go beyond the specifics of the college classroom. Right. So. I think that the book actually is an amazing resource for people who are engaged in teaching the Arab-Israeli conflict wherever they may be in their intellectual journey, and whether we're talking about informal education in summer camps or in uh, day school settings, uh, education programs for lifelong learners. One of the things that was really apparent to me was that if you were in politics or if you were in history, there were source books. There were collections of documents that you could use, primary sources. There were textbooks. You know, we've had a good range of textbooks for the last 15, 20 years, but there hasn't been an anthology of modern Hebrew literature that has been published with a range of stories and poems and plays that could be used in any kind of classroom setting since the 1960s. Right, There are collections of poems on thematic topics or on individual authors, but there isn't the kind of source books that are really convenient in a classroom space or in an informal education space. And so in the end of the book, we actually have lists of selected resources that really set up texts that can be used, both primary texts and secondary texts, so that you can follow a particular line and just know where this material is to be found, what's been published, what's available. Just at the most basic level, the book provides some of that material for people who want to build classes. It also suggests texts that work well or don't work well, what films um, translate well into different classroom environments. Another thing is that many of the essays talk about the kind of interdisciplinary resources that get used. What happens when you bring films into a history course and you're talking about borders and crossing lines? And what happens when you show them a visual reality of what that looks like? What happens when you read a novel in a jurisprudence class? So it's also about thinking not just when we teach a history course to 12 to 14-year-olds um, and, you know, give them dates and historical figures, but also thinking about bringing in texts that elucidate those experiences in ways that create an empathic and emotional connection that helps students understand a vast range of issues that are being dealt with. And I think that for educators outside of a formal classroom setting, there's a lot of really rich raw material that you can draw from to think about teaching in those ways. A history course doesn't just have to be a selection of historical documents and dates and numbers, but can also serve as a starting point. And then you can bring in narratives, films, poems to help create a much richer experience for students where they encounter empathy, they see other sides, they see a diversity of positions. And not just thinking of the Arab-Israeli conflict as two sides, like that are monolithic with uh, total agreement, but that they've become umbrellas for ways of talking about a whole range of groups with different interests. Right. I guess, you know, and this applies both to the college classroom as well as outside of it, but what do we gain from utilizing these kinds of resources that, that you're bringing forward, whether it's new maps that, that allow us to tell different kinds of stories or films and, and literature that people might not know where to look for in the first place? What is gained in terms of how 
students, young people, you know, or even people who are studying this, you know, as adults who who are learning more about the Arab-Israeli conflict in a continuing education setting, right? You know, what do we gain from using these kinds of sources that go beyond these traditional source readers and source books? What do we gain from this? I'm really talking to two different things. One is just that they didn't exist. If you weren't in a history class or a politics class, they don't exist. There are no collections. There are no really easy, accessible resources that you can pick up and say, right, I'll go build a class out of this. So so one thing is just gathering those materials, lists of those materials together and saying, okay, we don't have an anthology, but here's the text you can go and find, and that will help you build it. So some of it is very practical. But there is also a really important way in which we are teaching our students to think in more complex ways. We know that in the public space, often the criticism is that students, Jewish students even, come out and say, but I never knew. Nobody told me. And so when they encounter a narrative that is different from the one that they've been fed, there's no complexity in their thinking. And then they feel like they were lied to. And what we want to do is encourage, even at the youngest age, students to think in complex ways about complex matters that exist. How do people react differently? How do larger historical forces impact people on a very personal and individual level? And what are the meanings of that kind of personal interaction with history? And we often feel much more comfortable doing it in the U.S. in an American history context, but we don't feel so comfortable doing it in an Israeli context because we're scared that it will open doors to other kinds of thinking um, that will lead negatively to responses to Israel. And I think that for our students, they're sophisticated enough, even as children, to understand that there can be multiple perspectives. You know, we teach Thanksgiving now, right? In in good locations, we teach both about the situation of pilgrims and how the U.S. provided a, a home for people who felt religiously displaced, who felt persecuted, and at the same time can recognize how that negatively impacted the population that encountered them and how they brought with them, you know, disease and death and ideas that were terribly detrimental to the society that already existed. There is no reason why we can't give our students, even our youngest students, the same kinds of knowledge to help them understand that the Arab-Israeli conflict is complicated. And I think that this feeds into how we also exist as public scholars, which is that our job is to provide nuance and complexity and to shy away from tweet-length prescriptive ideas about contemporary political situation and to encourage students to critically evaluate the materials that they encounter and seek out a diversity of opinions and voices and to also be able to assess the quality of the material that they encounter and to understand the difference between reputable and unreputable sources. I think so much of our public discussion 
in the last few years has been about trolls and bots, false providers of information and fake news and news that isn't fake but is partisan and filled with bias. And, and we can't take away those things from our students, but we can teach our students how to recognize bias and how to read multiple sources on a single issue to gain a more complex understanding of a situation. I mean, I think that that's one of the challenges that we have as scholars. You know, on the one hand, we need to take very complex ideas and make them comprehensible. And on the other hand, we need to help our students and perhaps society more broadly to come to terms with the complex reality that we're living in and, and that we need tools and approaches that allow us to grapple with the complexity of, of our present day world. Uh, I mean, I think that, that in a lot of ways you're touching on really important issues as they relate to teaching, broadly speaking, into the role of the scholar. You know, I want to shift gears a bit and, and think about the book in particular. And I want to start by looking at the title. This is uh, Teaching the Arab-Israeli Conflict. You know, I think I, the, I even uh, slipped it in in my, in my own phrasing earlier, right? I, I mentioned the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So I, I want to start by, by just thinking about what the difference is in terms of how you frame this book and also how that leads to framing the issues more broadly in terms of the terms that we use to describe it, the, the conflict itself. So I was very careful with the choosing of the title. And what's been amazing to me is the number of people who've reacted, almost a gut-level reaction, well, but it's the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And in fact, the Arab-Israeli conflict is a larger regional conflict that has a much longer history and that is more complex and is a series of different conflicts that have had changing relationships over the past 150 years. And we, we can think about the fact that 22% of historic Palestine was captured in 1948 by Egypt and Jordan, and that Jordan annexed the West Bank. It made Jordanians, um, Palestinian West Bank citizens Jordanians. They participated in the parliament. They had election rights. Residents of Gaza were walled off by Egyptians. There were large fences, and Egypt functioned as an occupying force of Gazans until 1967. And so the relationships, the treaties that Israel built with Jordan and with Egypt were independent of their relationship with Palestinians, and that these different entities had their own strategic interests in creating peace with Israel that didn't include the Palestinians often in their calculations or saw them as kind of collateral that could be sacrificed. And so much of the history of the Arab-Israeli conflict is much larger than just the conflict between Israelis and Palestinians. And it deals with some of these larger issues that we've talked about, which are, you know, the fight over resources. But it's also about interreligious fighting between different groups, different Muslim groups, different minority groups, the oppression of different minority groups, the situation of Christian minorities inside the Middle East. It's also about changing regional allegiances over areas of interest. Um, how does Russia's involvement in the Syrian conflict affect other pieces of the Middle East? How does Iranian sponsorship of terrorist organizations impact Saudi Arabian allegiances? Sometimes we, we, we forget that many of these conversations about the situation of Palestinians particularly are somehow solely the responsibility of Israel and the Palestinians who are connected to Israel. 
But the Palestinians who've been in Syria and have been under terrible oppressive regimes, who have experienced often the brunt of some of the attacks that have been going on, are somehow, you know, not part of our larger conversation. And that that is about intra-Syrian and Arab community relations and has, you know, in a way is, is sort of a side peace to Palestinian-Israeli conflict. So in one way, it's just remembering that there are multiple pieces. Yes, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is often seen at the center. There are other conflicts going on in the Middle East, and that those conflicts are about other kinds of issues, religion, resources, and aren't necessarily just about Palestinians. And it's important to remember that in 1948, when the Arab countries wanted to annihilate Israel, they didn't do so with the idea of creating a Palestinian state that would be an independent entity. Different Arab countries imagined it would be a province of theirs, right? Would it be the southern province of Syria or Lebanon? Would it be part of a pan-Islamic empire? Would it be part of an Egyptian expansion as far as Jordan? And so it's very important to remember that we can't teach these things in isolated ways. Even the regional geopolitical issues are much larger. And it's also important to remember that the Arab-Israeli conflict isn't necessarily being taught as a standalone course or just being taught in an Israel studies program. It's also part and parcel of courses on the Middle East. And one of the essays in the book um, by Umutur Zur talks about how you talk about the history of the Middle East in Turkey, where Turkey doesn't see itself as part of the Middle East. It sees its own Ottoman history as a colonial enterprise, but as connected to Europe. And so how do they engage with this discussion around Arabs and Arab nationalism when it essentially led to the death of their own empire. What is really central, I think, so much to the essays in the book is remembering that this isn't a, a dual narrative in which there's Israelis and Palestinians. And I think that it's really important for us to remember to look at this conflict from multiple perspectives. One of the contributors talks about taking his students to Israel as part of a tour where they spend six weeks, um, most of which is actually spent in Jordan. And students get to meet Jordanians who are both Palestinians and who are Christians um, and who are Muslims. So they, they meet a range of Jordanians and what they encounter is different reactions to Jordanian Palestinians and non-Jordan and Jordanians who are not Palestinian and how that is different again from how they view Israel. It's about, again, encouraging complexity of thinking and understanding the larger context in which much of this takes place. I, I want to think about one particular section of the book that I found to be especially compelling, where it talks about, I think it's the first section of the book, where, which discusses teaching skills facing challenges, because it really digs into how we need to think about the study of the of the Arab-Israeli and the Israel-Palestinian conflict, right? Not just in terms of the information that we provide to students, like dates, you know, events, and so on and so forth, but in terms of like the learning objectives that we have as teachers, the critical thinking and problem-solving skills that students can pick up by looking at this particular set of issues. And I feel like we've talked about this a little bit, but I want to think about those essays in particular, because I was really struck by the way in which the authors were emphasizing the things the students gain from studying 
the conflict beyond just gaining the information uh, and the knowledge about it? So I think for academics teaching in an academic environment today, a huge push in our understanding of pedagogy is to remember that students are gaining critical skills that can be applied to other disciplines. And whether it means that you've taken one course in Middle Eastern history and now you want to take another one in the Israeli-Arab conflict and then you want to take a course in Hebrew poetry, or whether you're taking a course in Middle Eastern politics and next you're going to look at um, the Balkans or the um, uh, conflict in Ireland. There are different ways in which we want to be able to take those skills and translate them into other kinds of contexts. And you've mentioned some of them, critical thinking, recognizing our learning objectives, having skills, close reading, being able to actually pass a text being able to do critical research. I've said this before, but understanding the quality of resources. You know, our students come to us and they can't tell the difference between an academic journal that's been peer-reviewed and Wikipedia. And so I think that that's, that's a really important piece to how we serve as faculty, like part of our responsibility isn't just the content of what we teach, but teaching students how to look at things. So what does it mean then to teach them how to look at things? You know, so there was that essay by, uh, by Donna Devine uh, titled Teaching Students How to Think, Not What to Think About the Middle East Conflict. And I think that that really gets at the heart of it, right? Which is that clearly as educators, it's not our goal to teach the students what is the, the right perspective or the, the right opinion to have about a present day conflict. But I think that it's very much about teaching students about how to think about these issues. So I was really struck by that. I think that that's really at the center of a lot of the essays in the volume, that um, there is a session where faculty um, talk about how politics invades the classroom and how they can deal with their own understanding of politics, um, how that works in terms of the institutional culture. Um, Russell Berman has an essay where he talks about his work on BDS, fighting the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement, while at the same time creating a course where he's teaching Zionism and the novel, which is his academic discipline. And one of the things he's really clear about is that it isn't his job to be an activist inside the classroom space. By contrast, Mira Sukharov talks about how in her discipline, in IR, there's, it's actually very unusual to keep politics in abeyance. And for a really long time, she resisted trying because she felt uncomfortable having conversations about the Arab-Israeli conflict in the classroom space in ways that she felt were political and partisan. And ultimately, how she resolved that by finding ways to use her discipline to engage with those questions of activism. So um, I think our responsibility as faculty is to teach students to recognize symbols and tropes and patterns and to identify what it is that they're seeing. And we want to create a space where students can ask questions and be directed to understand critically. But it is never our responsibility to impose a kind of single, uncritical activist position, even while we can explain why faculty ourselves might be engaged in active work outside of the classroom space on a particular issue. 
You know, our students are perfectly capable of Googling faculty and knowing where we may stand on a particular issue because of public positions that we've taken. Part of the role of an academic is to create a responsible citizenry. You know, we so often think of the Arab-Israeli conflict in these polarizing and political terms. And what we want our students to do is understand where those perspectives come from. It it feeds into a larger conversation about, you know, um, is all anti-Zionism anti-Semitism or is anti-Zionism never anti-Semitism? And it's not black or white. You know, some expressions of anti-Zionism are clearly ways to um, substitute the word Zionist for Jew and are, are clear expressions of anti-Semitism. And some, you know, are critiques of a government or a, a particular position that are legitimate political critiques that are part of a civil discourse and democracy. And it's our job is to help our students be able to see the difference and to be right. able to read those nuances and then arrive at conclusions themselves, which are not the conclusions right. that we force upon them. Right. I mean, I, I agree with uh, pretty much everything that you just said. <laughs> I mean, I think that there, there's one point where I would maybe disagree. You know, again, I don't think that it's our job to tell students what to think, but I think that there's one point in which we need to put our foot down, uh, which is that there are multiple perspectives and multiple histories that need to be recognized. So if someone walks into a classroom and says that, on the one hand, the Palestinian narrative is completely worthless, or vice versa, that the Israelis are, you know, we need to insist that there are multiple narratives and that they all have value. Oh, but I want to push back. I want to push back against you. Um, that we also have to recognize that not all positions are equally valid, that when we teach the Palestinian narrative, teaching the Palestinian Authority narrative is one thing, teaching uh, the narrative of Hamas or um, Hezbollah or the Martyrs Brigade is not equally valid. The really complex line is not saying, look, there's multiple perspectives and we have to be aware of them and we have to recognize them, but also how do we evaluate what we consider is an okay perspective that should have weight and value and one which we consider is a problematic perspective? Exactly. And, and that's exactly what I was getting at, which is to say that I think one of the things that we need to teach our students is that there are these multiple perspectives and how we can evaluate what is a valid one uh, and what is not. But at the same time that we you know, should be very careful about dismissing the perspective of the other, whichever side that happens to be on, you know, because that is a, is a, a political tactic that has been used again and again, you know, for instance, to say that the Palestinians are not a people uh, or vice versa, you know, uh, for those who oppose the state of Israel, who say Jewish history should, you know, be disregarded or the, the Zionist project should be disregarded in its entirety. I think the, the challenge with the Arab-Israeli conflict, you know, beyond the politics as it enters the classroom or it does not, is we don't want to teach students what to think, right? We want to teach them how to think, but there are some times that we just need to say that you need to hear multiple perspectives uh, and not just shut the other side out. And, th and this, to me, is one of the ways in which the Arab-Israeli conflict is actually quite a useful tool, in terms of understanding broad historical and social issues, because it shows always that there are multiple narratives and layers and contexts in any history and to any issue that doesn't make every side correct, as you pointed out. But I think that, that students need to learn to listen, which is something that 
that not everybody is doing. Right. A lot of the essays in that first section really talk about learning to hear a diversity of viewpoints and how often hard that is for our students because they come into a classroom space having been raised in a way to hear good and bad. I see it with my four-year-old that the world is divided into goodies and baddies. And how do we take away that conversation? And because I work a lot in gender, one of the the really interesting things I get to do with my students is say, okay, so here we have this conflict and it's set up in these ways. And here is an issue. Let's take a step back from it and say, wait a minute, where are the women in this conversation? I was recently talking to somebody about the David Grossman book, The Yellow Wind, which was um, really a landmark moment. It came out just a few months before the first intifada broke out. And it was really celebrated for taking a position where he went to speak to and interview and try and understand the perspective of Palestinians at a time when the world most generally saw Palestinians as terrorists. It didn't really recognize Palestinians as a people looking for sovereignty. So the book had this really landmark moment. And the first thing I always say when I talk about this book is there aren't any women in it. The whole time that he's sitting there talking to these men and being served coffee or being brought into people's homes, the women are invisible. And never once does it occur to him to ask about the situation of women. And so it's a reminder that even when we think we're hearing two narratives, we want to teach our students to say, and whose voices are we not hearing at all? Where are the voices of gay communities inside this conflict? Where are the voices of minorities, religious minorities? Um, what does it mean to be a Druze? And so it's very important not just to talk about the voices that we do hear in those narrative terms, but in the ones that are also absent. And so what we're trying to give our students isn't just a sense of how to think about things, but also what questions do they need to be asking given the material that they're presented. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We've been talking a lot, I think, about what we can give to our students what they learn from us. But if we turn it around, right, again, to think about this question of whose voices are are being heard and whose are not, you know, we've been talking about the scholar's perspective on teaching. But what do you think that we learn from our students when we teach about all these issues? So for me, one of the most interesting sections of the book, and, and more generally about the way the book has emerged, is how much the faculty talk about their encounter with the students and what that has meant for them, um, both in terms of the expectations that they bring to the classroom as faculty and the expectations that their students bring to the classroom and how those get challenged. And we see a lot of really personal narratives. Um, And I want to talk about it from both sides, both from a faculty perspective and a student perspective. uh, Maya Guarneri Jaredat talks about teaching in the West Bank and being brought to teach about English literature and critical thinking and um, encountering hostility from a small group of students because she's Jewish and essentially being told that she's unable to teach anything because she's the enemy or um, teaching in a college, um, uh, uh, the story about teaching in a college in New York, where Susan Jacobowitz talks about being the daughter of Holocaust survivors. 
and coming into the classroom feeling extremely sympathetic to the Palestinian narrative and knowing that she's going into a classroom of immigrants, a lot of whom are immigrants from Arab countries, often the first generation to go to university, certainly the first generation to go to university in the United States, and encountering complete apathy towards the narrative of Palestinians and a complete lack of interest. And and having to think through how she can teach to create empathy, even when she expected there to be some, and find nothing there. I really love the essay by Hussam Mohammed because he talks about teaching in three wildly different locations. He himself is a Palestinian, and he taught in Abu Dhabi, he taught in Cyprus, and he taught in he teaches now in Oklahoma, where there is a large body of evangelical Christians among his students. And what it means to teach in those different kinds of setting, what it means to have another regional conflict as he encounters in Cyprus, mirroring the one that he's trying to teach about. There is an essay by Roland Mainuddin. He's a Bangladeshi Muslim who is teaching at a historically black college and the kind of general suspicion towards him as a Muslim trying to teach about the Arab-Israeli conflict um, and trying to, to work in that area, but also the, his own prejudice that he brought into the classroom when he started and how sort of reading and learning it made him broaden his own mind and to think more critically about the conflict. And, and we see that in a lot of the essays, particularly the ones focused on teaching outside the United States. There is a great essay in the volume about teaching in India by Kumaraswamy, who explains that our very um, premise about teaching the Arab-Israeli conflict depends upon a kind of Western civilization understanding of history and understanding Jews' roles in history. For Indians, where Jews are a tiny, 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 minuscule minority, um, many just assume that they're a competing sect of Christianity. So how do you start a discussion about a conflict in which the terms aren't even defined? And how do we rethink the paradigms in which we teach in completely different locations? Right. I think it brings up another set of issues about why teaching about the Arab-Israeli conflict and thinking about these issues uh, is really important. I think that we should keep in mind that it is important, of course, how Americans think about the conflict, but also that there are billions of people around the world who also uh, are looking at what is happening in Israel and in the Middle East more broadly and are scratching their heads and trying to figure it out. There are more and more international students who are coming to the U.S. But when you look at, for instance, India or China or Russia or anywhere else, it's a big question. You know, what do people there know and think about the Arab-Israeli conflict and how that affects the way in which they look at the world as well. And so I think that when we think about the role of the scholar and the role of teaching, our classrooms can be very small places. In the grand scheme of things, even if you have 100 students in your class, I think it's important for us to keep in mind the, the ramifications and the, and the value of teaching in terms of how these ideas proliferate and percolate. And for me, anyway, that's one of the reasons why I like teaching, uh, because you know, even if I'm only teaching a small number of students, there's still this idea that in some way, right, we need to keep in mind that there's a whole vast sea of people who also need to learn about these things. And 
Because I mean, it's a check. So there are 11, currently 11 centers of Israel studies or places that teach Israel studies in China at the moment. So one of the things that I was thoughtful about when putting the volume together was recognizing that the baseline that we're talking about is going to be different in different places and that that matters. And it matters if you're teaching at Eastern Michigan University, which is a, you know, a college of commuter working students from the sort of outskirts of Detroit. And if you're teaching at Stanford or NYU. And I wanted to make sure that we represented the differences of experiences of faculty and of students in different locations with different kinds of access to resources, because that also impacts the learning experience. We're struggling so hard in the U.S. on Hebrew language instruction. And in general, positions everywhere are being cut. You know, the sad news that Middlebury is losing its Hebrew language. You know, this noted school that has a huge amount of energy put into language instruction hasn't created a tenure track position. And now they're cutting the position entirely. And this desire to talk about, you know, maybe we should teach languages online. Maybe we should outsource language teaching. And then you look at the case of Egypt which um, is discussed in Mena Abu Khadra's essay. And she talks about 1,500 students a year studying Hebrew. And having such limited access to resources in Hebrew and the change that the internet has brought and the change that Hebrew language programming by Arab stations is bringing and how important that has been in understanding the kind of worldwide web impact on classroom encounters. And so it's not one thing, but like a larger set of issues about access and resources and also baseline information. Um, and I think that um, several of the essays in the section on um, on understanding the multiple various classroom settings really engage with those questions. You know, I also have taught in China. And that was a, a while ago. I gave a, a series of lectures uh, in Nanjing University and, and in Kaifeng, uh, you know, where they have a, a very vibrant, like a very active centers for Jewish studies. It is interesting because I think that we need to keep in mind that these are issues that are important and that matter to people all over the world, that they may have bigger issues of their own, wherever they may happen to be. But I think that, that it is interesting, right, that as you point out, and as this book really highlights, the Arab-Israeli conflict and Israel studies is being taught in places that we might not expect, uh, and that the students have a different set of issues you know, they, the students have different perspectives everywhere you go. You know, I, I do want to think about a, a, another set of issues as we start to come towards the conclusion. You mentioned before some of these issues regarding how politics enters the classroom, uh, you know, or how we can, you know, keep it out in one way or another. But I think that what is interesting about this debate about politics in, in the classroom is that I think that if we look at uh, a lot of uh, social discourse and social norms and expectations today, there are a lot of assumptions about how certain professions and fields should be quote unquote objective. For instance, journalists, you know, jurists and uh, you know, the university and so on. There's a very interesting intellectual critique of the whole idea of objectivity that has been going on for quite some time now. And this, I mean, I don't mean to get into the, the politics of, you know, facts, alternative facts, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, if you look at the scholarship of the past, you know, 30 years, 
and more, there is a, a very deep debate over whether anyone can really be objective about anything and whether it's possible to, to achieve such a thing. But I think that, that what is interesting here is the expectation, again, that when we talk about how we should teach students how to think and not what to think, especially when we look at the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, there's kind of no way to escape the fact that this is a deeply political set of issues and that everybody... Uh, and especially people who are who are well informed on the issues uh, has an opinion of their own on uh, what has happened, what should be happening in the future, so on and so forth. And this is true, I think, both for professors and for for students as well. And so when we maybe step away from the intellectual debates about whether or not objectivity is, is possible, um, but at the same time, we, we keep in mind that this is one of the expectations of the university classroom is that it is, quote unquote, objective uh, and nonpartisan. Do you think that it's possible to talk about the Israeli-Palestinian conflicts in the classroom uh, without letting politics in. Do we even want the classroom to be apolitical, essentially? You know, and then you know, the, the follow-up to this whole set of issues is how do you think that we can respond when we're working and teaching on campuses where the politics of Israel and Palestine are powerful forces that are all around us? So I think that there's an assumption built into the question, which is that people are extremely political and hold strong positions on the Arab-Israeli conflict, that campuses are generally partisan places. And what really emerged as I put the book together was how much faculty are shocked by the apathy of their students, that many students don't actually hold positions, that they come because it's something that's in the news that they know they don't know anything about and would like to know more about. And so there's this really interesting piece where you have maybe a couple of students in a class with very strong opinions, but the vast majority actually don't. Um, so that's one of the things. Also, that the kinds of campuses that are political or political in different ways, that there are different kinds of politics on campuses, and that the stuff that we often hear about is that a minority of schools, usually schools of greater privilege, um, very highly selective institutions. We can talk about NYU, we can talk about Columbia as kind of hotbeds of a certain kind of thinking. But the book really understood, I hope, that we're talking about a lot of different kinds of places. And a lot of places where there isn't an emotive or political connection to the conflict, but where it's one of the things that gets taught as part of a liberal arts curriculum and where you're actually trying to engage the students to have an opinion about anything. And how do you work in that kind of narrative? So I think that it's very important to remember that not all places are political, that the politics you encounter may not be what you expect. Teaching evangelical Christian Zionists is not the same as teaching, you know, Brooklyn Jews. And so what, what do those experiences mean and how do they differ? Is there a community on campus or is it an external community that holds strong political views? What does it mean to teach outside Detroit, for example? Um, and so I think that, that, we have to start with the idea that classroom spaces are fundamentally political in the sense that we are trying to wake students up to engaging with real world issues and thinking about those real world issues and being able to talk as faculty about our involvement in some of those issues when it is raised. But again, it's about teaching students how to think and not what to think and not 
guiding them to a specific position. And so I think that that remains a really central mission to how people engage with the conflict. You know, I, I come back over and over in my own classes to thinking about how we teach those diversity of viewpoints. And in my own essay in the book, I talk about teaching film and wanting to teach about women's filmmaking. And I have two problems when I want to teach women's filmmaking. The first is I want to teach about women and filmmaking. And yet um, there's the risk that my class is going to get hijacked by a conversation about history and politics in order to provide context, but also because those are the issues that um, students become interested in. And so how do I make sure that I'm teaching the content that I want to be teaching while still providing enough information to make the class make sense? The last time I taught the film course, I was talking about women's filmmaking on gender issues, how as women became filmmakers, they were able to make films about women's issues in critical ways, such as about rape and sexual harassment. And in the middle of teaching this course, the news breaks about a university football player who has basically been accused of raping a student at his university and then the Me Too movement breaks out and we start to hear about Roger Ailes and Harvey Weinstein and Charlie Rose. And these things are literally happening in the context of a couple of weeks where I'm talking about women as activist filmmakers, talking about gender discrimination and sexual harassment in the Israeli film industry, and then making films about rape in the Israeli film industry. And of course, the you know, politics intrudes on the classroom. And we often get, we often fall into the trap of thinking the only politics we're talking about are conflict-based politics. And they're not. There's all kinds of politics that become part of the classroom space. And so we're enabling our students to think critically about all of the material they encounter. You know, my students may never see another Israeli movie again, but they're never going to watch a, a film by a woman director dealing with women's issues without thinking about the questions that we raised in class about representation and images. I mean, I think this is a this is an important set of issues that you're bringing up, that this is not just a question that intersects with the teaching of the Arab-Israeli conflict. The role of politics and our present world in the classroom is something that we are always engaging with. I think that that this is something that drives my own research interests and my own work here on the podcast as well. No one is completely divorced from the world in which they're living. You know, our students are smart. There's a reason why they're in our classrooms. And they're making these connections, even if we aren't necessarily. Right. And our students know when they look at our syllabus before the second day of class, whether we included women's voices on our syllabus, whether we included minorities on our syllabus, whether it's a bunch of dead white males on our syllabus. They know that. And maybe they don't come to us, but they're talking to their friends. They're talking to the people around them. That information leaks back. They're not unconscious of how things are selected or passed. And I think that when a faculty member is rabidly activist, they know that. And that that's conversation that gets around. And yes, maybe they'll learn to tailor their responses on a university paper to make sure that they get the right kind of grade, knowing the position of the faculty member. But I don't think students appreciate that kind of direction any more than, um, you know, total ignorance of the world around them either. And I think that they're con they see it when they encounter that and they don't like it. 
Right. Well, I think that one of the the questions that does come up not infrequently, you mentioned uh, professors who are actively political on a set of issues and, and, and students know about it. But the question is, should professors, should scholars hold back their political views? And I'm not talking about in the classroom, but in terms of their own life. I'm not sure that they should, because I think that one of the things that we are as scholars, we're not political activists by any means. You know, certainly we don't have the time for it uh, or the resources, but, but, but what we are is we are experts on these topics. And I think that, you know, sometimes in the pursuit of objectivity, that actually leads to indifference to say, you know, I don't want to be involved in this issue because it might tarnish my scholarship or it might make the students think that I'm only presenting one side or the other. I think, I mean, I think that, that, that it presents a, a very challenging fine line that needs to be walked by scholars, you know, in as much as we need to understand that, you know, students can look us up on Twitter, they can see what we have to say. Does that mean that we should say nothing at all? I'm not sure that's the case. I mean, I think, I think that that's a big question that is always out there. I think that our students are very smart and very literate in social media. And there are ways in which we are activists because we're advocates. I'm an advocate for women in the profession. I spend a huge amount of my energy working towards improving the situation of women in Israel studies. And that is a really important part of the kind of public work we do. And it manifests in different ways. It manifests in talking about what it means to be a woman in the profession. And those those kinds of voices that we have carry a great deal of power. But when I set out to put this volume together, I asked all of the contributors two things. They had to tell me about a course that they've taught or would teach and make sure that if someone else wanted to repeat that class, they had enough information about the kinds of activities and exercises and resources um, and syllabus that could help them do it. And whether they were talking about a particular course or a particular kind of institution, something that was replicable. But they also had to think about who else they were talking to. Could they tell me about something about their pedagogical experience that would translate, even if it was passed through a different disciplinary lens, to faculty in a different kind of situation or a different kind of discipline. And the vast majority of people responded with essays that took on board these uh, questions of how to think about teaching the, the conflict. But there were definitely a few essays that crept in that were activist statements about how this topic has been ignored and this is a terrible thing and um, this is what you need to know. There was no pedagogical information about it. There were no sources. There were no resources. And they were rants. Are there academics who rant? Sure. You know, we're very good. Academics speak in paragraphs. They don't speak in sentences. But there was a difference between the people who were critically reflective about the educational experience and the people who weren't. And the people who weren't didn't make it into the volume. 
And that was really important. That was really important for me. That was the line. Was this a pedagogical moment? Was there something about this teaching, this essay, this idea, this trip that was arranged to go to Israel that could be helpful when someone else wanted to repeat the experience? And that was really where I drew the editor line. I think there's there's one final thing that I want us to talk about before we finish up. And this is, I think, a bigger issue you know, that goes beyond the conflict. Again, to go back to something that I said at the beginning of our conversation, I think that very clearly the Arab-Israeli conflict, you know, in all of its manifestations, it has a great deal of importance and that it, it very clearly matters. But at the same time, uh, and I think that, they, they, that you might have a lot to say about this as somebody who studies Hebrew literature, how do you think that we can talk about the history of Israel and of Palestine and why it matters beyond the conflict. Because I think that there are a lot of students who come to the classes because they recognize that the conflict is this, this pressing uh, this pressing set of issues. You know, So do you think that we can teach about Israel and about Palestine in a way that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict uh, and the Arab-Israeli conflict doesn't overwhelm everything else, essentially? I think that um, there are different kinds of courses with different kinds of agendas to them. I think that it would be rare for a an Israel studies course in this day and age not to in some way touch on the Arab-Israeli conflict, but that might be a single session. And that doesn't necessarily mean overwhelming an entire course subject. So when I teach Israeli cinema, you know, I certainly have a module where I talk about Palestinian filmmaking. I also have a module where I talk about Palestinian women who make films in Israel. That's different from a course about the Arab-Israeli conflict. I think that you can teach about, you know, religious secular relations in the um, religious community in Israel and pretty much avoid talking about the Arab-Israeli conflict, except for the fact that at some point you may talk about military service and the fact that there is a conflict within the ultra-Orthodox community about military service and what does that mean. You can talk about gender issues. You can talk about domestic violence. And yet at some point you're going to touch on the fact that in highly militaristic societies, gender violence is increased um, against women and there's greater access to guns than there are in, you know, non-conflict-based societies. And then I point to the U.S. and then, you know, all the stats go out the window because this is a much greater gun country than anywhere else. So, you know, I think that it, do it isn't necessarily a looming presence in every conversation. But it is, um, but I think it's also irresponsible to pretend that even domestic issues aren't in some way framed by other kinds of issues. And, and we can also separate out the Palestinian situation in it and, and the Israeli Palestinian situation with the larger, um, conversations about militarism in Israeli society, an existential threat. And that brings us back to essentially where we came in about the Arab-Israeli conflict, because that militaristic view isn't just about a conflict with Palestinians. And for a really long part of Israel's history, it had nothing to do with Palestinians. It had to do with Arabs and Iranians, wherever they may be located. And so, you know, these, these subjects are overlapping but not interchangeable. 
Right. Well, thank you so much, uh, you know, for this really interesting conversation. Thanks. It's been really fun talking about the book today and the kind of um, work that went into sort of thinking about it in, in ways that would be most helpful for people who want to teach. I agree. I think it's a really great volume and a, a really important resource for people who are teaching these kinds of courses. So thank you. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening to this episode. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig, and thanks for listening to Jewish History Matters.